Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start with our national lead. Any minute we expect the afternoon session to finish in the highly anticipated trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin in Minnesota. And we got our first real look at how the prosecution and the defense plan to make their cases after Chauvin was charged with killing George Floyd last May by kneeling on his neck for almost 10 minutes in a shocking viral video. Chauvin has pleaded not guilty today. The defense suggested that he was not responsible for Mr. Floyd's death at all. Instead, that George Floyd died because of a combination of underlying health conditions and being high on drugs at the time. He, they cited the county medical examiner's report. The prosecution is relying on an independent autopsy commissioned by the Floyd family, which says that George Floyd died solely because Officer Chauvin compressed his neck for an extended period of time. The jurors also today watched the video of Mr. Floyd's death where you can hear him say repeatedly that he cannot breathe as the officer knelt on his neck and his back. And a warning, we will play that video momentarily, and it is graphic. The defense says Officer Chauvin was only restraining Floyd as he was trained to do, as CNN's Sarah Seidner reports from Minneapolis. On May 25th of 2020, Mr. Derek Chauvin betrayed this badge when he used excessive and unreasonable force upon the body of Mr. George Floyd. The prosecution's opening statement tells you everything you need to know about how they want the jury to see this case. 929, the three most important numbers in the case. Nine minutes and 29 seconds, the excruciating time George Floyd's neck was under then-officer Derek Chauvin's knee. This case is not about split-second decision-making. And to help make that point, prosecutor Jerry Blackwell played one of the videos for the jury. You'll see he does not let up and he does not get up. You will learn that Mr. Chauvin is told that they can't even find the pulse. The first witness, a 911 dispatcher. Her May 25th dispatch was also played in court, showing she was watching surveillance video of Floyd being pinned down that day. I didn't know. You can call me a snitch if you want to, but we have the cameras up for 320's call. My instincts were telling me that something's wrong. Jurors were told they'd also be seeing and hearing all the video from bystanders' cameras to police body-worn cameras, as well as hearing from Minneapolis police officers, the chief of police, medical experts, and witnesses on the scene. For the defense's case... Derek Chauvin did exactly what he had been trained to do over the course of his 19-year career. The use of force is not attractive, but it is a necessary component of policing. Chauvin's attorney, Eric Nelson, made clear this will also be a battle of experts. This will ultimately be another significant battle in this trial. What was Mr. Floyd's actual cause of death? He wants the jury to look at the whole scene and listen to the use of force and medical experts, as well as read the medical reports. That re revealed Mr. Floyd had an exceptionally high level of carbon dioxide. Dr. Baker found none of what are referred to as the telltale signs of asphyxiation. There was no petechial hemorrhaging. There was no evidence that Mr. Floyd's airflow was restricted. Instead, he suggested it was illicit drugs found in Floyd's system that aggravated a medical condition that took Floyd's life. With hypertension, his coronary disease, the ingestion of methamphetamine and fentanyl, and the adrenaline throwing flowing through his body. 
all of which acted to further compromise an already compromised part. There was one thing the defense and prosecution did agree on. There is no political or social cause in this courtroom. But in the streets and for Floyd's family, Chauvin is not the only one on trial. America's justice system is. The shade of your skin shouldn't be a death sentence. Mm. America is watching. Before the trial began, the Floyd family and their lawyers knelt outside court for nearly 10 minutes to illustrate just how long Floyd begged for his life under Chauvin's knee. We came in for one thing and one thing only. We came to get justice. Somebody needs to be held accountable. And they are saying the whole world is watching, as well as several members of the Floyd family who are here also watching as this trial gets underway. We should also mention that in cross-examination, that 911 dispatcher was asked about whether or not she saw the squad car that Floyd was in when officers were on either side of it rocking back and forth. And she said that indeed she did. The defense clearly trying to show that there was a struggle between Floyd and the officers. But in the end, when asked whether or not she still believed she might have been seeing excessive of force from her vantage point, she said yes. Jake. All right, Sarah Seidner, thanks so much. Uh, let's discuss uh, Van Jones. This is one of the most important and high-profile trials in recent history. Uh, what are the political and societal stakes of this trial beyond just the trial? Well, they're astronomical. I mean, it reminds me of when I was a young person during the, the Rodney King trial back in you know 1992. Um, you're looking to see uh, do I matter? Uh, can, any, can, can, can anything happen to a black person that is considered a crime? The police officer does it. Uh, you have a whole generation globally trying to answer that question. Uh, if this conduct from this officer is ruled non-criminal, he's just doing his job, it's okay. It will feel like a declaration of open season uh, for a lot of African-Americans who already feel that even with this level of, of uh, community oversight, uh, police get away with too much too often. And so um, this is I think this is this is uh, the, the trial for a generation that's coming up. This is the most important trial for them and therefore for the. And Sarah Seidner, uh, still with us uh, from Minnesota, I believe, Sarah, the, the we've heard from two witnesses uh, this afternoon, one of which was the 911 dispatcher. Basically, she was testifying that from her vantage point, it looked as though it was excessive force to the degree that she even thought that the screen had frozen because he was kneeling on George Floyd's neck so long. Do I have that right? You have that absolutely right. Perfectly right, Jake. She talked about the fact that she's looking at this, remember, from a dispatcher standpoint where she's listening in her ear and making calls, but she's also able to finally see the surveillance video up above the scene from the back of the car. So she's actually able to see George Floyd being pulled out of the car. Of course, she didn't know who he was at the time. But she's watching that and she's noticing that minute after minute is going by and yet the officers are still down and Chauvin in particular down with their knee down on his body. And so to her, it seemed like it was an awful long time. She thought her screen was frozen. And when she realized it wasn't, she thought it was so significant that she called a supervisor and 
said, look, I don't want to be a snitch or, or, or anything, but this doesn't look right to me. And she made that very clear on the stand. And I'm sure uh, that that had a major impact also on the jury. And I know we're in just the sort of beginning phases of all this, but some of this testimony has been, especially hers, uh, has been quite strong, Jake. Uh, and former federal prosecutor Jennifer Rogers joins us now. And, and Jennifer, one of the most striking moments was when the prosecution played a full witness video of the amount of time Officer Chauvin knelt on George Floyd's neck. The prosecutor told the jury he wanted them to see what happened, quote, without lawyer talk and without lawyer spin. And these jurors, some of them watching that video in full for the very first time. And that's a that's a long nine and a half minutes. It was really, really powerful, Jake. I mean, I wish we could have gotten a, a look at the jury to see if they had any reactions, but there's really no way that you you couldn't react to that amount of time and watching Chauvin just sit there with his knee on Floyd to see if first is making noise and asking for help and, and then just nothing. I mean, half of that nine plus minutes is him effectively unconscious. So I, I think that was a really powerful piece. Yeah, uh, her, uh, Jennifer's... Uh, uh, Cisco just uh, froze there for a second. Let me bring uh, Van back. Uh, Van, uh, the defense is also arguing that the force was necessary uh, because, their argument, not mine, George Floyd struggled with officers. He was taller and heavier, bigger than the officers. That's all factual. The defense also said that the officer did exactly what he was trained to do over his 19 years as an officer and that the use of force uh, is not excessive it's not attractive, they said, but it's necessary. What'd you make of that argument? Well, it was a lie. It's a, it's a lie. Um, you can use uh, the minimum force necessary to effect an arrest and no more. So as the, the, the term excessive force actually means what it says. It's one of those uh, remarkable legal terms you don't have to have a law degree to understand. Where you're using force in excess of what was needed to effect the arrest. He clearly was. Uh, the guy was literally, uh, you know, begging for his life. He wasn't struggling, and he, you know, lost consciousness. He's begging for his mother. He's not fighting back, and that's why. And the other thing that you see uh, is, you know, the police creating their own peril by being so brutal toward this man. They draw a crowd, and then the lawyer says, "Well, because of the crowd, that they, you know, didn't take care of the person who was being arrested." No, it's because you were brutalizing the person that you had the crowd. So you're going to see all the classic stuff here. Uh, please create a peril and then uh, use the peril they created uh, to justify their uh, misconduct. They're going to try to put George Floyd on trial, not the officer. But at the end of the day, you're, you're, you can believe you're lying. You, they're going to tell you, don't believe your lying eyes when you see video after video of what looked at the entire world like a lynching. And, and, and Sarah Seidner, um, you, they said, and you described in your piece, the battle of the experts. You have the defense that has the county medical examiner saying that uh, George Floyd died because of drugs and, and his physical condition, and then an independent autopsy that says, no, it was because the officer was leaning on the guy's neck for almost 10 minutes. At some point, the jurors are just going to have to decide which one makes the most sense to them because, I mean, I find it hard to believe, just as somebody who practices common sense, that, that even if George Floyd had the drugs in his system, that, that he'd be dead right now if it weren't for the officer kneeling on his neck. Right, and if you look at uh, the, the paperwork itself, I mean, he, it says that he died of a homicide. That is because somebody else 
created his death and, and affected his death. I think one way to put this, uh, that Benjamin Crump, the, the attorney for the family, sort of put it this way. He was walking and talking and driving and sitting and doing all of the things in life until the officers put their knee on his body. And so that was one of the points that I think you're going to hear made at some point in this trial. Jake. All right. It's going to be up to the jurors, of course. Thanks to one and all of you. Appreciate it. The Biden administration pushing a $3 trillion infrastructure plan this week. The question is, who's going to pay for it and how? And now Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg says several options are out, but one is on the table. Then President Biden making a big announcement about who could get a vaccine in the next three weeks. That's ahead as well. Stay with us. We're back now with our politics lead. In moments, I'm going to speak with the Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, ahead of President Biden's next big legislative push, an infrastructure plan that could come with a $3 trillion price tag right on the heels of Biden's COVID rescue plan for almost $2 trillion. Just this afternoon, President Biden announced that the nation is closing in on his goal of allowing every American adult to be eligible for the coronavirus vaccine by May, boosted by doubling the number of pharmacies where American adults can get a shot, as CNN's Caitlin Collins now reports. And as much as we're doing, America, it's time to do even more. Moments ago, President Biden announcing he's accelerating vaccine access in the U.S. For the vast, vast majority of adults, you won't have to wait till May 1. You'll be eligible for your shot on April 19th. Biden now says 90% of U.S. adults will be eligible to get vaccinated by April 19th. And to make that possible, the administration is more than doubling the number of pharmacies nationwide where people can get vaccinated. 90% of Americans will be within five miles of a location where they can get a shot. The president is also preparing for his next big push, infrastructure. In the coming weeks, the president will lay out his vision for a second package that focuses squarely on creating economic security for the middle class. On Wednesday, Biden will return to Pittsburgh, where he announced his presidential campaign, this time to lay out his ambitious infrastructure plan to rebuild the nation's roads, bridges, water systems and technology. We're currently 13th in the world. No one believes we should be there. Aides say Biden's far-reaching plan will include $3 trillion in new spending, and Biden will have to address how he plans to pay for it. I can assure you that when the president lays out his infrastructure plan, uh, he will also lay out a plan to pay for it. That could lead to the next battle with lawmakers, given Biden's agenda is expected to be offset by a wide range of tax hikes on corporations and wealthy Americans. If they uh, share a goal of building our infrastructure for the future but don't like the way he's going to propose to pay for it, we're happy to look at their proposals. Uh, If they don't want to pay for it, I guess they can propose that too. And of course, Jake, we expect that Wednesday announcement from President Biden to just really jumpstart what what are expected to be very lengthy negotiations with lawmakers on Capitol Hill on what that infrastructure plan is going to look like. And one other thing to note, when President Biden was speaking earlier to reporters, he called on governors and mayors to reinstate mask mandates if they've rescinded them, saying it's not about the politics, it's about keeping people safe in the wake of some rising cases in several states. All right, Kaylin Collins, thanks so much. And joining me now is Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. Secretary Buttigieg, thanks for joining us. So Republicans 
say they want to keep infrastructure, any big package, limited to roads and bridges. They are not interested in a Green New Deal, as the top Republican on the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, Sam Graves, put it. Which is more important to the Biden administration, getting the proposal President Biden wants in its entirety or getting uh, legislation that's likely more modest but bipartisan with Republican support? Because it does not seem like you're going to be able to get both. Well, I think that uh, there's a tremendous opportunity now to have bipartisan support for a big, bold vision on infrastructure. I I see it in the conversations I'm having with Republicans and Democrats on the Hill. I definitely see it in the conversations I'm I'm having with people across the country. Uh, Americans don't need a lot of selling to know that we've got to do big things when it comes to our infrastructure. And the truth is, you can't separate uh, the the climate part uh, from this vision because every road we fix, every bridge we build, we can either do it in a way that's better for the climate or worse for the climate. Why wouldn't we want to be creating these jobs in a way that's better for the climate? So that sounds like you're saying there's an opportunity for bipartisanship, but you want to do what's big and bold and you feel is needed. Take a listen to Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell last week. We're hearing the next few months might bring a so-called infrastructure proposal that may actually be a Trojan horse for massive tax hikes and other job-killing left-wing policies. So Senate Democrats are keeping open the possibility of introducing this legislation under the special budget rules, which would require only 50 votes, not 60, meaning you could do it without any Republican support. What will it mean, do you think, if Biden's first two big legislative pushes get zero Republican support? Well, uh, uh, let's remember the American Rescue Plan had lots of Republican support, an enormous amount of Republican support, just not here in Washington. I think we can do better than that, though, with this infrastructure bill. I think this can be something that will reflect not only popularity among the American people, but uh, I hope uh, we can work in good faith with uh, folks across the aisle in Congress to to get some votes there. Ultimately, it's up to them whether they're going to support something, but we're going to work with them to try to shape it in a way that earns as much support as possible. And at the same time, the American people can't wait. We've got a trillion dollar backlog uh, just in things like our roads and bridges. We've got to act. And I really am encouraged by the what I believe to be the sincere expressions of interest that I'm hearing from the other side of the aisle on doing something real. Let's make very clear, this is a jobs bill that's going to have climate benefits. And I think that's something we should all be able to get behind. Who are some of the Republicans that you're, you're talking to that you feel encouraged when you talk to them? You know, I'll leave it to them. Some of them uh, uh, like to, to talk in public about our conversations and some of them don't, and I'm fine with that. Uh, I'm trying to find the deal space for what we can all come together around. And as the president rolls out his vision, beginning with the Wednesday announcement, uh, I think folks are going to find that it strikes a chord around the country. My hope is uh, that means that uh, it'll bring uh, people across the aisle to the table here in Washington, too. Now, you have said that you want to have it paid for, at least part of it, um, with either spending cuts or tax increases. Uh, It's possible that there's some moderate Democrats who won't support uh, a raise in taxes, including Congressman Josh Gottheimer of New Jersey. He told Axios he's worried that tax increases could theoretically slow the economic recovery. He said, quote, we need to be careful not to do anything that's too big or too much in the middle of a pandemic and an economic crisis, unquote. Um, As of right now, is raising taxes on wealthier Americans the the primary funding source for uh, your plan? 
Well, you're going to hear more details from the administration in the coming days about how to pay for this. But one thing I will do is reiterate the president's commitment that his proposals will not raise taxes at all on anyone making under $400,000 a year. So nobody who makes under $400,000 a year will see a, a tax increase. You said also that a mileage tax showed, quote, a lot of promise as a way to help pay for the plan. Um, that tax would charge people for uh, how many miles they drive. Is that under consideration? No, that, that's not part of the conversation about this infrastructure bill. Uh, so just want to make sure that's, that's really clear. But you will be hearing a lot more details in the coming days about how we envision being able to fund this. And uh, again, uh, these are carefully thought through responsible ideas that ultimately are going to be a win for the economy and need to be compared to the unaffordable cost of the status quo. Okay, so something of a backtrack on, on, on that. Let me ask you about, uh, is there a, a possible increase in the gas tax? Uh, that's a tax that has not been uh, raised in, in years, as you know. Is that under consideration? No, and again, I want to reiterate the president's central commitment here. If you're making less than $400,000 a year, this proposal will not involve a tax increase for you. There are still about 10 million Americans unemployed right now. How many jobs do you anticipate your infrastructure and transportation plan will create? Uh, and is putting people back to work the primary goal or, or is it the secondary goal? Well, I think the president views this as uh, an opportunity to boost American competitiveness. So I think of this as a jobs vision, uh, which also means a lot in terms of climate, means a lot in terms of recovery, means a lot in terms of equity. I know some folks in Washington want to try to slice these things or separate them. Uh, to me, talking about infrastructure and saying you, you don't want to mention climate is like, talking about food and saying you don't want to mention nutrition. They all go hand in hand. Uh, but fundamentally, this is a jobs bill. As far as the numbers, uh, I'm really excited to see what the economists do to score uh, the details that the president will be sharing in the next few days. Safe to say we're going to be looking at millions of jobs and maybe most importantly of all, a chance to restore America's leadership role at a time where right now we run a very real risk of being left behind because of the cost of disinvestment in our infrastructure. This afternoon, your department announced that more than $30 billion from the American Rescue Plan will be available for public transit systems who are no doubt suffering during this pandemic. How long do you think it will take uh, in order to get the ridership back up to a place where even the busiest transit systems, such as the ones in New York or Washington, D.C., have enough riders to, to break even? Well, what we've been able to do, thanks to the American Rescue Plan, is uh, get back from the cliff that a lot of these transit agencies were up against. As you said, over $30 billion being made available. And I want to stress, this isn't just the, the big city transit agencies you think about, but also going out to rural communities everywhere that it's needed. And that's helping us fight COVID by getting people to where they need to be. Now, the one thing I want to mention in terms of ridership is we still don't know what some of the permanent changes are going to be uh, because we've been through such a shift in the way that Americans work uh, that the way the Americans get to work may change too. That's something that may take years to play out. But what we've been able to do right here and right now is avoid these route cuts and layoffs that were going to be very real this very spring had the Congress and the president not acted with the rescue plan. All right. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, thank you. Good to see you again. Same here. Thanks. A desperate appeal from the director of the Centers for Disease Control. Right now, I'm scared. Please hold on a little while longer. What is happening across the United States that is causing such concern? Stay with us.
In our Health Lead today, a candid moment today from the CDC director who threw out her script to address the recent spike in COVID cases in the United States. Cases are up in 27 states right now. The national average jumped 16% in just one week. That's the highest spike since mid-January. And with more Americans vaccinated, the Biden administration is considering guidance on vaccine credentials or a kind of vaccine passport so people can prove they got their shots, as CNN's Alexander Field now reports. And I'm going to reflect on the recurring feeling I have of impending doom. A desperate and emotional appeal to all Americans. So I'm speaking today not necessarily as your CDC director, not only as your CDC director, but as a wife, as a mother, as a daughter, to ask you to just please hold on a little while longer. Dr. Rochelle Walensky pleading for the public's help as new COVID-19 cases start climbing in more than half the states. Right now, I'm scared. Um, I know what it's like as a physician to stand in that patient room, gowned, gloved, masked, shielded, and to be the last person to touch someone else's loved one because their loved one couldn't be there. A similar plea this afternoon from President Biden calling on all states to pause reopening efforts. I'm reiterating my call for every governor, mayor, and local leader to maintain and reinstate the mask mandate. Please, this is not politics. The Biden administration trying not to repeat past mistakes as former President Trump's former coronavirus response coordinator lays bare some of those failures. There were about 100,000 deaths that came from that original surge. All of the rest of them, in my mind, could have been mitigated or decreased substantially. 20% of American adults are now fully vaccinated, progress accelerating with more than 3 million shots on each of the last three days, according to the CDC. Every state but Arkansas now says it plans to meet or beat President Biden's May 1st deadline to make vaccines available to everyone 16 and up. And a new CDC study shows just how effective the vaccines really are out here in the real world. When given to 4,000 healthcare workers and first responders, Moderna and Pfizer's vaccines were 90% effective at preventing infection, 80% after the first dose. As we increase the number of people vaccinated, we know some people may have a need to demonstrate that they are vaccinated. The administration now working to develop guidelines for people to prove they've been vaccinated, while some states like New York push ahead with their own system, vaccine passports. The government here is not viewing its role as the place to create a passport, uh, nor a place to hold the data uh, of, of citizens. Uh, we view this as something that the private sector is doing and will do. And Jake, set aside that issue of vaccine passports for a moment and what you can do once you are vaccinated, because the bigger issue is what people are doing before they get vaccinated. On Sunday, we saw another pandemic era travel record set and health officials in some states are saying that they are seeing a growth in cases among young people. Young people, of course, have had less access or perhaps no access at all to vaccines at this point. Jake. All right, Alexander Field, thanks so much. Let's bring in Dr. Megan Ranney. She's an emergency physician at Brown University. Dr. Ranney, thanks for joining us. As you heard, the Biden administration does not want to discourage people from getting a shot as they're also working to create guidelines for a, a vaccine passport. Could you see people will really need this to travel or return to work? 
You know, already there are universities and workplaces across the country that are asking for proof of vaccination before you can return. Um, there's one university that's already said it's going to be required for students before coming back to campus next fall. Vaccines protect not only those of us who get them, but they protect everyone around us. And I can imagine a world in which once these vaccines get full FDA approval, once they make it past this emergency use authorization, when they are indeed going to be required, not just here at home, but also across the world. Both President Biden and the CDC director today said that states reopening too soon lifting their mask mandates and more, may be contributing to the recent spike in cases. You're an ER physician. What do you think's going on? That is absolutely what's going on. I mean, I'll tell you, my last week of shifts in the ER, I saw more COVID patients than I'd seen in the prior month. It's because we are letting more people into restaurants unmasked. We are allowing bigger public gatherings, often unmasked. It is absolutely incontrovertibly true that when you get together people who are not yet vaccinated in a public setting without masks on, COVID spreads. We have been through this movie before, and it boggles my mind that governors across the country are unwilling to hold on just a little bit longer in order to protect people. Jake, I admitted a 40-something-year-old to the ICU just a week ago. He had not had the chance to be vaccinated yet, and now his life is forever changed because he caught COVID at work from someone who had been socializing. It isn't fair to our populations to be lifting regulations so quickly when we haven't gotten vaccines out to everyone yet. Not time to, 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 for people to let up uh, yet. Um, we've been hearing a, a number of former officials from the Trump administration blaming the Trump administration for problems early on in the pandemic. The former White House testing czar now admits the testing was not as widely available as the Trump administration made it seem. Take a listen. We said there were millions of tests available. There weren't, right? There were components of the test available, but not the full meal deal. All right, so that's what Admiral Giroir told Sanjay Gupta for the special last night. But take a listen to Admiral Giroir when I had him on State of the Union last summer, and I was pressing him on the lack of testing. And in terms of the number of tests that we have available, look, we're able to achieve uh, almost all our goals right now. We want to improve our testing, but we have enough tests right now if we use them in the right way to achieve the goals that we need to achieve. What do you make of, of all these former Trump administration officials now saying the things were much worse than they were saying at the time? You know, I wish to God that they had spoken up last spring, last summer or last fall. We were being gaslit as a nation. Those of us on the front lines were sounding alarms that we had no PPE, that we had no tests, that we were running out of beds. And we were being told by the administration that we were lying. Uh, I, I am glad they are telling the truth now, but I wish they had spoken up earlier. I wonder how many lives would have been saved uh, had they done so. Well, Dr. Burke says hundreds of thousands, potentially. Dr. Megan Ranney, thank you so much. A new challenge has been filed to the restrictive Georgia voting laws. That's next. In our politics lead, several civil rights and voting rights groups, including the Georgia NAACP, the League of Women Voters, and Common Cause, have filed a lawsuit challenging Georgia's new voting rights law. The law limits voting drop boxes, shortens in-person voting hours, and even makes it a misdemeanor to offer food or water to people waiting in line to vote if you are not with the polling officials there. 
President Biden last week slammed the Republican-backed law as sick and said it makes, quote, Jim Crow look like Jim Eagle. Let's discuss. Uh, Nia, let me start with you. The, the suit claims that Republican officials included specific changes in the law to target voters of color after the record turnout and Democratic victories in the November 2020 presidential election and the two Senate runoffs in January 2021. We should note that the final legislation is far less draconian than a lot of the earlier proposals we heard, but still, obviously, the goal is to limit voting in many ways. Uh, Do you think that they have a case here? Listen, uh, you know, we'll see. As you said, there had been a kind of rollback of some of uh, the more draconian, uh, you know, approaches that uh, many of these lawmakers wanted because of public pressure, because of public uh, scrutiny as well. So we'll see what the NAACP uh, and other groups are certainly looking at at what's happening, what they're able to do, as well as there's there's been uh, pressure put on some of the businesses uh, there as well. The big businesses, places like Coca-Cola, Home Depot, uh, Georgia has been transformed right into sort of the new south because of the presence of those businesses so there are some pressure points uh, being applied and we'll see if any of that is able to affect any change with these laws uh, zolan uh, senator lindsey graham republican of south carolina he was asked about by president biden comparing this new law to jim crow take a listen Every time a Republican does anything, we're a racist. If you're a white conservative, you're a racist. If you're a black Republican, you're either prop or Uncle Tom. They use the racism card to advance a liberal agenda, and we're tired of it. H.R. 1 is sick, not what they're doing in Georgia. H.R. 1, obviously, is the, is the Democratic package uh, of uh, voting reforms, the, the goal of which is to open up voting as opposed to restricting voting. What do you make of uh, Lindsey Graham's uh, response there? Well, look, we're going to see more members of Congress, Republicans, senators, as well as uh, on the House side, uh, uh, trying to use the president's word, taking this subject uh, to criticize H.R. 1, the the House effort, the Democratic effort to expand voting rights. Uh, We have heard more members of Congress uh, uh, continue to say that it is a matter of infringing on state rights. But as you expanding voting access. It's interesting, in that same interview, uh, Senator Graham, uh, one part of uh, the the uh, legislation that's moving forward in Georgia, uh, that being uh, the restrictions on providing water bottles uh, and other supplies to people in line. So even there, Senator Graham uh, having some criticism uh, of what's going on in Georgia. It's important to this isn't, a nice, this isn't isolated to Georgia. It's not just going to be this state. There's Republicans in 40 different states, Jake, that are pursuing similar kind of legislation. Yeah, as Zolan's uh, signal is going out there a little, let's take a quick break. Uh, stick around. Uh, they're both coming back, Niamalika and Zolan. Uh, the Biden administration now saying they need 34,000 of this item to keep up with the crisis on the border. What is it? Stay with us. Also in our politics lead, the White House will brief House Democrats tomorrow on the situation at the southern border. The Biden administration will need an estimated 34,100 additional beds to keep up with the projected number of migrant kids arriving at the border through September, according to internal government estimates obtained by CNN. Let's bring back our panel. Uh, Zola, let me start with you. Republican Senator Ted Cruz of Texas released these images from his visit to a border facility in Texas of kids on the ground covered with mylar blankets. Biden 
continues to deny press access to see how these kids are being treated. They're being treated in taxpayer-funded facilities under policies bearing our name. Uh, I think Senator Cruz has a point. We should have these open to journalists, yes? The Biden administration thus far has allowed access into a shelter managed by HHS, Jake. But what's important for viewers to know is that is not enough to really fulfill transparency here. Uh, the, 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 the facilities that are holding children, the facilities that currently are pushed beyond capacity, where roughly 5,000 children are being held, the facilities that were initially designed for the short detention of individual adults, those are the, are the facilities that we have put requests in to tour at this time. Uh, you also mentioned that uh, there will be a briefing soon. It will be interesting to see where the Biden administration goes forward and whether they continue to use that pandemic emergency rule to rapidly expel single adults back south across the border. Nia Malika, your take on how the Biden administration is handling the crisis? Well, listen, it's hard to point really to any administration that has handled this crisis. Well, you have the Biden administration uh, saying that uh, this was a surge that was expected in some ways, that it's seasonal, that there was also a surge under Donald Trump in 2019. Well, if that is the case, they probably should have been much more prepared for it. Uh, we're going to see more of these uh, migrants coming up from Central America because of what's going on in those countries. So they have a big, complicated uh, problem on their hands, as have other administrations. And we also know uh, that Congress hasn't done much about this either. Zolan Kano Young and Nia Malika Henderson, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. We pulled it off. A look at the roller coaster ride in the Suez Canal to free that huge cargo ship. Stay with us. In our world lead today, after six long days, very expensive days, the massive cargo ship blocking the Suez Canal has finally been freed. But there are still 422 ships waiting to pass through the waterway. Officials say they'll be able to cross on a first-come, first-served basis, except for ships carrying livestock, which will get priority. Even though the Ever Given has been freed, it could take up to three and a half days for the backlog to clear the canal. We want to take a moment to remember just one of the 549,000 lives lost to COVID in the U.S. Today, we remember Fred Posovitz. He was the police chief of Clinton Township near Detroit. 64 years old, he spent almost his entire adult life with this one police department, even becoming its first canine officer in the 1980s. Posovitz was big on family and community. He was set to retire in June, but he died of complications from COVID-19 one week ago today. To his wife and his six children and his former colleagues, our deepest condolences. May his memory be a blessing. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at the lead CNN. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Wolf Blitzer is back. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.